And first of all, I want to thank Professor Cruz, Bob, for first of all for that much too kind, uh, flattering introduction. Uh, I also wanted to thank Burchak and Orit and everyone at the Abbasi Center for sponsoring my work here, bringing me here, allowing me to discuss my research with you. Uh, I also wanted to thank the Center for African Studies for giving me a nice home downstairs, uh, Laura and Ariane, and for helping, and all the students down there for help, making me feel very much at home here at Stanford. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my dissertation research and what I'm working on now turning into a book. Um, and I'm really excited to get your feedback. On, uh, so please take notes, jot things down. Uh, I really look forward to learning a lot from you as well, because this is still very much a, a work in progress. Okay. So... When we talk about the African continent, roughly, kind of schematically, we have three general types of intellectual traditions. We have the Europhone ones, ones that take place in European languages, and these are mostly your colonial, post-colonial universities, uh, the ones like University of Lagos, uh, Sheikh Antejab University in Senegal, the major universities in, in South Africa. Then we have, uh, secondly, this category of Islamic or Orthodox Christian intellectual traditions, so which have their own institutions of learning like Al-Azhar in Egypt, Qadawin in Morocco, um, or various Orthodox Christian monasteries where there's a lot of scholarship that takes place in Ethiopia, Egypt, so on and so forth. Then we have this third category, which is the most diverse, and I kind of hate to use this word, but indigenous. And these, uh, sorry, the Orthodox, Christian, and Islamic generally take place in Arabic and African languages, and they're both written in oral. Then we have these indigenous uh, intellectual traditions, which are usually tied to non-Abrahamic African religions. So by the other half of my dissertation, I studied Ifa, which is a Yoruba religious tradition. And there's a lot of interesting intellectual activity going on there, but it's predominantly oral and almost entirely takes place in uh, African languages, such as Yoruba, Wolof, Hausa, um, uh, Swahili, other things. Um, all right. So studying Europhone traditions is not so difficult because those kind of come from the same traditions that, that uh, we come from here in the academy. But as we'll see later, when we try to study these other or interact with these other two broad categories of intellectual traditions, things can get a bit stickier. Okay, today we're going to focus, though, on the Islamic uh, traditions of, uh, of Africa, particularly Sufism. Now, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust recently did a major survey of Muslim countries. I don't know if you can, can, if you can see the, the chart there, but I'll, I'll read it out. Um, and they found that uh, Sufi orders are most prominent in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so of the kind of Islamic traditions operating in West Africa, uh, which is the region in which I focus, the Sufi traditions uh, seem to be the most prominent and popular. Now, God knows how they got these numbers, but it, it, it corresponds to, if any of you have been to West Africa, especially Senegal or Nigeria, it'll correspond to reality. I think you'll see the pictures of Sufi sheikhs everywhere on taxi cabs and things like that. So according to their, their study, 92% of people in Senegal claim affiliation with the Sufi Sufi order. Uh, Nigeria, it's a little lower, it's 37%, but it's still much larger than any other country uh, they surveyed. So Sufism is central to understanding Islam in West Africa, and I would also argue West Africa is central to understanding Sufism globally today. 
Okay. Of the various Sufi traditions operating in West Africa, the most popular by far, uh, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, is the Tijaniya, the Tijani order. And the most popular branch of the Tijani order is the one founded by this man right here, Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, who died in 1975. Um, I grew up seeing this picture on taxis, uh, coffee stands, uh, mini buses, the back of uh, bowls, all kinds of things as a kid in Lagos. And if you're in West Africa, everybody who's spent time in West Africa will have at least seen this picture at least once. His face is kind of ubiquitous everywhere. Uh, Time magazine estimated that his order currently has around 100 million members. Again, I don't know where they came up with this uh, estimate or how accurate these numbers are, but the point is it's a huge, vast number of people uh, who belong to this particular tradition. Um, and this is the particular tradition that I studied in my dissertation research. So moving back a little bit, before we get into the intellectual dimensions of this tradition founded by Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, um, you have to consider, there are some things to consider when we're engaging with an intellectual tradition that's different from our own, um, and particularly with African intellectual traditions. The Africa, these traditions have sometimes been studied in the West, but usually for their anthropological significance or as kind of ethnographic data. It's like, oh, isn't it cool what these black Muslims do? They dance and sing and stuff. That's, that's nice. Um, but the, being studied as intellectual traditions is something that's been a bit more difficult to do in Western contexts. And I argue that this this is the case for two reasons. One is kind of the hidden hegemony of Western theories. It's kind of like if you forget you have glasses on, you don't realize that you're looking through a particular set, theoretical set of lenses. Or another time, this is called confusing map for territory. To give you a completely unrelated example of this, um, I can't tell you how many, when I was doing neuroscience, I can't tell you how many papers I saw describing Chinese medicine, like acupuncture or things like that. And then they would describe it in terms of Western medicine and say, okay, this is what's really going on biochemically. Forgetting that Western medicine and medical theories are just as much theories of the body and health as Chinese medicine, as Chinese medical theories. They say, no, biomedically, this is what's really going on. But the Chinese doctor could say, actually, no, chi-wise, this is really what's going on. So there's a tendency to forget that we have our own theoretical glasses on, too, and see everything in terms of uh, Western theories and ideas. And this is a big problem, especially when dealing with other intellectual traditions, because we tend to try to reduce them to our own theor theories instead of recognizing them as being equal theoretical apparatus. Uh, complicating this is the unique history of philosophy in the West, which we'll get into a bit more later, in which philosophy came to be defined against religion and as a discursive, largely mental exercise. Uh, from my studies, this seems to be kind of unique in world civilizations. This is not the direction Chinese philosophy took. Uh, this is not the direction Sanskrit language philosophy, whether Buddhist or Hindu, took um, in India. It's certainly not the direction Islamic philosophy took on the various continents that it was on. So this often leaves uh, scholars looking for the wrong thing. They'll see something that seems religious or mystical and then automatically, oh, no, that can't be philosophical at all because it's religious. But this category as philosophical versus religious is something that has a very unique, these categories have very unique Western histories that are not shared by other civilizations. Uh, explaining this a bit further, um, because of these uh, 
this unique history of Western philosophy. This gives us a lot of biases that are deeply embedded in the philosophies that form the basis of our current theory and methodology. So for example, without thinking about it, most uh, scholars writing about oral African traditions tend to see the absence of writing as a lack, to see orality as the lack of writing rather than its own thing. When in fact, in many of these traditions, having writing is a sign that you haven't properly internalized the knowledge yourself. So I did some research with um, priests in Nigeria who sometimes do, of not Islamic, this is of these indigenous traditions, who sometimes do use writing to help them memorize things faster. But if you're, if you're actually using writing in your practice, they consider that to be a crutch, to sign that you're not a mature priest, that you haven't fully learned the tradition. Um, so, but in, in general, we tend to see differences from our academic ways of uh, knowing and going about things as a lack not difference as a potential plenitude. Uh, the second is kind of good old racism. We tend to think our philosophers and thinkers and theorists should look like these people on the bottom. And it takes a bit more convincing for us to consider what these kinds of people would have to say as being serious theory uh, or philosophy. Um, okay, I'll skip some of these things. Um, I covered that. So how, how do we then approach these theories given all of this baggage? Uh, one model I took was from a scholar called Pierre Hadot. He's a French scholar of ancient Greek and Roman traditions who looks, uh, took this idea from the texts of the traditions that philosophy for the ancient Greeks and Romans was more a way of life than a set of discursive ideas or theories. Um, and he paid close attention to the way texts were used to form more than inform. So the ways in which these texts and things shape people rather than just give you a picture of reality. So he wrote, and I think this very much uh, is applicable to the Tijani Sufi tradition we're going to talk about later today. Philosophy was a method of spiritual progress which demanded a radical conversion and transformation of the individual's way of being. Thus philosophy was a way of life, both in its exercise and effort to achieve wisdom and in its goal wisdom itself. For real wisdom does not merely cause us to know, it makes us be in a different way. So Hadot argues, I think quite convincingly, and many people in the field of classics now buy his argument, that classical Greco-Roman philosophy was much more existential and more transformative and not so much just a, a theoretical mental exercise. Um, and I think this kind of model applies well to when we're thinking about other uh, philosophical traditions from around the world, particularly those of the African continent, in which rituals form an important part of intellectual life. And so finally, when, when you're approaching a different uh, intellectual tradition, it can often be hard because it has completely different cosmology and metaphysics. So a lot of these African traditions, you know, that all these different levels of reality and gods and spirits and all that stuff, and that's not, uh, that's not something we typically encounter in the academy. Um, and so it can be kind of hard to come at it from that, that angle. Um, but this, cos uh, this uh, cosmology and metaphysics also affects the epistemology, the, the, the philosophy of how things are known, what knowledge is, what knowing is, because it tells you what a person is. A person is, uh, has these faculties, is capable of these kinds of things. But then that epistemology, when put into practice, is what generates this kind of cosmology or metaphysics. So you have kind of a logical loop. I generally tend to try to come into things from the uh, side of epistemology, because that's easier and seems to require fewer assumptions. Than I, so, for example, in this presentation, I won't try to have you assume the existence of gods and spirits and all of this other stuff, but rather look at how people come to believe those things or how those things 
terms come to make sense for people. And that kind of can get you in, into this, uh, this interesting loop of making sense of a worldview. All right, so what is Tijani Sufism? Uh, it's composed of uh, two adjectives, uh, one adjective and a noun, Tijani and Sufism. So first we'll talk about what Sufism is and then talk about what the adjective Tijani means. So Sufism is an English term that's usually used to translate the Arabic word Tasawuf, um, which is classically emerged around the same time as other Islamic disciplines such as fiqh, the science of tafsir, interpretation of the Quran, other things like that. Uh, Sufis themselves call the discipline of Sufism uh, the science of tasting or dhawq, uh, referring to its immediacy. Sometimes it's called the science of the real, the science of reality, or the science of, of certainty. Uh, so Often in English, Sufism is described as Islamic mysticism, esoterism, or spirituality, or one tradition of Islamic mysticism, esoterism, or spirituality. It's described as Islamic because it's based on the Quran and the Sunnah, or the example of the Prophet, and is also based, uh, its goal is a kind of direct experience of the divine, or direct knowledge of God, which is why it's sometimes called the science of tasting. Tasting is a metaphor for direct experiential knowledge. Um... Yeah, it's esoteric in that it emphasizes the inward aspects of the Quran and the Sunnah, uh, and it's mystical in that it emphasizes this kind of existential direct or uh, knowledge of the divine or direct perception um, that transcends discursive description. And it can be described as spiritual in that its focus is on the divine and it privileges meaning or spirits over form. So the perspective of Sufism is largely based on the Quran and Sunnah and secondarily on the experiences and insights of previous Sufis uh, that they acquired uh, during their quest to mold their souls to what's called the beautiful model, Uswa Hasana, of the, of the Prophet, uh, whose wife Aisha equated his character with the Quran and called him the Quran walking on earth. Um, so sometimes in the literature, there's a, there's a tendency to try to pit Sufism against, uh, like, okay, there's Sufi Islam and then there's regular Islam, or there's Sufism and then there's the law. Um, in West Africa, that's not really has not been the case for centuries, and I think in a lot of places, uh, that's that kind of binary really breaks down if you look into the history of it. But it's especially in contemporary West Africa, it's just, that binary especially does not uh, hold. So to give you kind of a, an idea of uh, what these direct knowledge Sufis were talking about. Um, Al-Ghazali compared the direct knowledge of God versus the theoretical knowledge of God, uh, the direct knowledge being what Sufism is, claims to offer, saying how great a difference is there between knowing and knowing the causes of health and being full, and you're actually being healthy and full. Or what's, uh, there's a big difference between knowing the definition of drunkenness and actually being drunk. So Ghazali came to these conclusions after he famously did this whole radical doubt thing about 500 years before Descartes. He was um, a teacher, famous Islamic teacher, and then realized uh, everything he knew was somehow subject to doubt. Uh, the sensory information could be doubted, his rational processes could be doubted, so he left and went on this search for certainty. And he claimed to find it in the practices and methods of Sufism, which he said gave him a direct knowledge and experience of the divine, of reality. And then came back and wrote all of these great books about Sufism. 
Uh, Rumi also compared this direct knowledge of Sufism. He said it's uh, in trying to explain it to people who don't have it, it's like when you tell a little kid about sex, tell them, oh, it's like candy, so sweet. Um, Ibn Arabi, another famous Sufi, said if someone asks you about the special knowledge of Sufism, ask them uh, to prove the, the, the knowledge of the taste of honey. Um, it's and my probably one of my favorites is early Sufi Abu Bakr Wasiti uh, said, if someone claims to have recognized God from the evidence, ask them how they recognize the evidence. So the idea here is that Sufism operates on this kind of direct existential level that somehow prior to uh, the normal discursive and rational reasoning. So we all know discursive rational reasoning, we usually start with a set of axioms. Uh, the question is, and where do those axioms come from? And the Sufis would say those axioms have to come from direct experience of the divine of reality. That's the only way to have certainty. Um, okay. Yeah, so I said it's based on direct ex experiential existential knowledge of reality or the real. Uh, it can even be called empirical. So a lot of Sufi texts begin with something like the following. This one is from famous 15th century Sufi's uh, magnum opus. He said, I will only mention uh, that which happened to me on my own journey to God. Moreover, I recount nothing in this book, neither of myself nor another, without having tested it at the time when I traveled in God by the path of intuition and direct vision. So in a sense, it's empirical, except the laboratories are not external things here. The laboratories are your own life and your, your experiences. So when um, we're going to get into some of these Sufi doctrines, but it's important to remember that these things are grounded in people's actual experiential and existential uh, experiences that they've had and that they describe. So this is one of the most famous hadith um, in Islam in general, hadith being a saying of the Prophet, um, but this is particularly quoted all the time in Sufi texts. You'll find it everywhere. And it's called the hadith of nawafil, or supererogatory actions. And in this, the Prophet, the Messenger of God, says the most, uh, this, so this is a particular kind of hadith in which God speaks through the mouth of the Prophet. So there's the Prophet saying it, but he's speaking on behalf of God. Yeah. So the most beloved things which my servant draws near to me is what I've enjoined upon him, the obligatory things. And my servant does not cease drawing near to me through supererogatory or extra acts of worship until I love him. Then when I love him, I become his hearing with which he hears, his sight with which he sees, his hand with which he grasps, and his leg with which he walks. Okay. So Sufis often interpret this, including Tijani Sufis, as describing three dimensions of, of Islam or of Islamic practice. The first level, the uh, obligatory things, that which has been enjoined upon them, they equate with the Sharia, the divine law, how you behave. You know, so you pray like this, you don't eat pork, you don't drink, you do this, you don't do that. Um, and that's the first step. The next step is the supererogatory acts of worship, which they identify with the tariqah, or which is um, the Sufi, various Sufi litanies and other forms of worship that uh, Sufis do. So they have forms of meditation, litanies that they'll say morning and evening. And this they identify in this particular hadith with the supererogatory acts, these extra acts of worship that you do. And if you keep these, these two things up, then eventually you get to this strange state when God becomes your hearing and your seeing and all of this other stuff. And this they identify with the hakika, with the reality. Um, and so this state in which God becomes the hear, hearing, the seeing, whatever, is call, often called in Sufism annihilation or fana. The, the Sufi is described as being annihilated in God like a drop that returns to the ocean or like a moth that enters a flame. 
uh, and it's called the reality, identifying it with the, with the divine reality. Now this term, annihilation, or fana, comes from a famous verse in the Quran, which again, Sufis cite all the time. Kullu man alayha fan wa yabka wa rabbika. So it's everything that is upon it, usually meaning the face of the earth, is passing away, and there only remains the face of your Lord. If any of you know Arabic, you'll see this is where the, the, the term fana and then its partner term baqa comes from. Okay, so the explanation, this is all quite esoteric, but fana basically means most of us, we see things, we don't see God. Right? Uh, in fana, they say in this particular mystical state, you see God, but you don't th- see things. All you see is God. God you're hearing, seeing, everything is just God. Then the idea is to, that's not the end, you want to come out of that, and then enter the state called baqa, or subsistence, which is considered the kind of end of the path, in which you see God in things and things in God. So before you're veiled from God, but you can see things, people, hamburgers, cars, whatever. In Fana, all you see is God. You see everything as God. Then in Baqa, which is the final stage, you see God in things and things in God. You're neither veiled from things, nor veiled veiled from God. Um, So this is... uh, it's kind of just a rough outline of, of, the, of the Sufi path. And it's from this standpoint of Baqa that the famous Sufi masters formulate their, their doctrines and write all these treatises about reality and all, all these kind of things. Um, these two states are often equated with the two shahadas, or testimonies of faith in Islam. Uh, the first being La ilaha illallah, there's no God but God. And the second being Muhammadan Rasulullah. So La ilaha illallah, the Sufis often interpret, not just as meaning there's only one God, but there's nothing in reality but God. So you see this chair, you think it's here, uh, it's not really there, that's just an illusory appearance. The reality of the chair is actually God, uh, the divine. And so that is something that experience when people are in the state of fana, of annihilation. And then the state of baqa, or subsistence, uh, is associated with Muhammadan Rasulullah, Muhammad is the messenger of God, which for Sufis, it doesn't, it's not just the mere fact that a particular man happened to receive a message from God, but rather it's a statement about the connection between God and man. It's a kind of spiritual anthropology. Uh, the universal, um, yeah, so this refers to a Sufi doctrine called the universal or perfect man, which refers to the, not man as in male, but the perfection of the human state. So the human, human perfection connects all levels of being from God to the physical world and contains them all within himself. Um, so the Prophet Muhammad is considered, considered the example par excellence of this, as are other prophets in the Quran and other holy people. Um, but they're considered not only to be uh, the most perfect of all people, but the inner, the perfection within each person. So the perfection of the human potentiality is understood to be contained within each person. Um, and this perfection of the human state is called, in Arabic, the insan al-kamal, perfect universal man, or uh, the haqiqa muhammadiyah, the Muhammadan reality, which in Sufi cosmology forms this kind of logos-like role. It's this thing that, uh, through which God creates the whole world um, and is yet imminent in everything as well. We'll get to that uh, a bit later. Okay, so this um, this is kind of often... This cosmological schema is often described in terms of God contemplating himself in the mirror of non-existence. Um, and as you can read in this poem here, the, the world is described as 
the the reflection, and man is the uh, the eye in that reflection. And so, in a certain sense, the the whole world is just as if you look at yourself in the mirror. If you look closely at your own eye, you'll see the entire reflection in your eye in the mirror. Uh, so, man, in a sense, contains the whole cause. It's like a microcosm in this doctrine. Another way in which it's commonly explained in Sufi doctrines as a dreamer within a dream. So the world is kind of God's dream and man or human beings in general are the character uh, of the dreamer in the dream. So for example, if you think of yourself, you're dreaming. You have a self in the dream. That self, everything in the dream like is you but also isn't you. So all of the characters, the dragons, the cars, the whatever, it's you. It's nothing other than you, but it's also different from you. And then your character in the dream, who you are in the dream, I don't know if you're a dragon or if you're yourself or if you're a superman, whatever, whoever you are in the dream, has some more direct relationship to you than the other things in the dream. And it's through that character that you see and experience the dream. And because that character in the dream that you're occupying uh, is directly connected to you, that character is also directly connected to everything in the whole dream, and sense summarizes everything in the whole dream. So this is the kind of doctrine that Sufis have about human beings in general, but especially the prophet and other saints and people like that who have achieved the station of human perfection. Okay, so this um, Sufism has often been described as the search for the truth with all of one's being. And so it's focused on the existential transformation of the human being, but that also includes the mind. So Sufism has produced a vast body of discursive work um, that's often been in dialogue with other traditions, uh, such as Islamic philosophy or Islamic theology, which are uh, separate disciplines, but which Ibn Khaldun, so, uh 14th, 15th century scholar famously complained by his time they had become so intertwined that you couldn't tell whether a work was a work of uh, Islamic theology, philosophy, or Sufism because they were all talking and arguing with each other so much. Um, and I wanted to pass around some of these books so you could see oops, so you could see what um, the kind of scholarship that's being produced in, uh, by West African Sufis today. So all of these are 20th century uh, books that have come out. Um, and if you don't know Arabic, it's fine. Take a look at it. So you, you can just see like the footnotes and stuff. Um, this is a, It's not just a um, fun mystical tradition where people are having visions and things like that. People are producing scholarship with arguments um, for all kinds of philosophical and moral positions. So the relationship between Sufism and philosophy is probably most famously summed up in the story about uh, these two famous figures, Abyssena or Ibn Sina. It's a famous most philosopher, probably the most famous Muslim philosopher, um, 11th century, and his contemporary, who's a famous Sufi who lived up in the mountains, Abu Sa'id Abu Khair. And the story goes, it's probably apocryphal, but who cares, it makes a good point. They, the story goes that they met one day in the bathhouse, and they had a Everyone else let the, left them alone and let them sit down and talk together for like two hours. Then they came out and they asked Avicenna, said, oh, so how'd you find Abu Sa'id Abu Khair, the big Sufi? How'd you find him? And Avicenna reportedly said, what I know, he sees. And then the Sufi came out, Abu Sa'id Abu Khair, and they asked him, well, how did you find Ibn Sina? What was he like? And he said, what I see, he knows. So I think this, this kind of perfectly describes the accent 
of, uh, and the differences and the similarities between the disciplines of Islamic philosophy and Sufism. One is a bit more existential, about transforming the way in which the world is seen, and the other is a bit more theoretical. But they're not, uh, they don't necessarily see themselves as being opposed to one another. And if you have, sorry, we just blew through like a really heavy dose of Sufi doctrine and other stuff. So if you have any questions, anything, please raise your hand. I'd be happy to take, take them. Okay, so now we'll come to the Tijani modifier on Sufism. Um, Tijani Sufism is uh, uh, a Sufi order or branch. Sufism started to organize itself uh, about six centuries after the death of the Prophet into these uh, orders, somewhat similar to monastic orders like you have in, in Europe or, or the West. Um, usually there'll be a founder who will set a certain rule. So if you're a member of this order, you say these prayers at this time of the day, you do this, you don't do that, so on and so forth. Um, the Tijani order is a bit unique amongst the Sufi orders in the world. It was founded rather late. Um, it was founded uh, in the uh, 19th century, or no, founded in the, in the 18th century by Sheikh Ahmed Tijani, who was an Algerian, uh, lived on the border of the Sahara Desert. And the Sahara Desert quickly, um, so oftentimes in studies of Africa, people tend to separate North Africa from Sub-Saharan Africa, as if the Sahara Desert is this big divide that people don't cross. In fact, it, the Sahara Desert functions much more like an ocean. In fact, it actually shortens the cultural and uh, distance between two places. So places on the, in the, the northern edge of the Sahara Desert, in Algeria, for example, are almost identical to places on the southern edge of the Sahara Desert in Mali because there's nothing in between. So ideas, books, people, you have the same spices, the same clothing on either side. So it actually kind of, the Sahara Desert actually shortens the distance between places rather than creating this gulf. And this is particularly important when we're studying Tijani Sufism because from its inception it spanned this, it was kind of a Saharan order and spanned both, both coasts of the, of the Sahara. So Sheikh Ahmed Tijani, so Sufi, had a waking vision of the Prophet, uh, which he was instructed to start his own order. Um, the most Sufi orders have the, the master will have a chain of initiation. So he was initiated by someone who was initiated by someone who was initiated by someone all the way back to the prophet. Um, so most Sufi orders by the 19th century would have these long, long chains of initiation called the silsila that would guarantee their orthodoxy and effectiveness. The Tijani order is unique in that uh, the chain is very short because it goes from, on the basis of this vision, it goes back to Sheikh Ahmed Tijani and then straight to the prophet. It doesn't mention any of these sheikhs because he had this vision and believed, believed he was initiated directly by the prophet. Um, so the prophet Muhammad in Islam is often called the seal of the prophets. Muslims believe there's no prophet after him. And in the elaborate saint theories of, of Sufism, each saint is kind of, uh, in Arabic they say, on the foot of or as inheritor of one of the prophets. So you have saints who are on the foot of Jesus, uh, tend to be kind of ascetic, face a lot of persecution, um, and are kind of Christ-like, Jesus-like in their qualities. Saints who are uh, inheritors from Moses are usually strong political leaders and have like Moses-like qualities. And saints who are uh, inheritors of Muhammad, who are like Muhammad-type saints, are considered to be the best um, and Sheikh Ahmed Tijani claimed himself to be the seal of these Muhammad-type saints. He was the last one of them, which made him the best of all the saints, um, which is a very controversial claim uh, in Sufism at the time. 
His Sufi doctrine is very similar to what we kind of discussed above. You go, disciples go through Fana, this experience of annihilation, and then on to Baqa, um, except he emphasized something called Faid, or emanation. So in his doctrines, very heavily emphasizes this idea that the, the world is created through an emanation from God, first to the uh, Mohammedan reality, that human reality of human perfection, which he described as being the first thing that God created, and then from that out to everything else. And it's described as like a, um, this almost aquatic like imagery of being and knowledge flowing forth from the divine fountain and collecting itself in the basin of the prophet and then flowing out to everything else in the world. And this was um, this doctrine was picked up and significantly revived by Sheikh Ibn Yas, who you see over here, um, figure I mentioned before, and his disciples call him the seal of the seal. So they say, okay, Sheikh Ahmed Tijani is the last of these super great Mohammedan saints, and he is the one who kind of seals his legacy. Um, and his big claim to fame among in Tijani circles was that he was the bringer of what they called the Faida, which is a flood, and it can be translated as, as a flood. So remembering this imagery of the whole world is created, knowledge, blessings, everything, I have this kind of aquatic imagery. Sheikh Ahmed Tijani made a prophecy that one of my disciples will come and there'll be a flood of divine knowledge and spiritual enlightenment that will come at his hands and flood over the whole earth and everyone will become these enlightened saints. And so Sheikh Ibrahim Yas claimed this title for himself. He claimed to be the one who fulfilled this prophecy um, somewhat controversially, but uh, uh, his order has... Um, uh, his disciples have taken the, the rapid spread of his order as proof that he is the one who brought this, uh, this particular flood of divine knowledge and enlightenment. So that's a quick intro. Um, now this is uh, these kind of esoteric diagrams. You'll find in some of the more esoteric uh, Tijani texts, diagrams like this, in which they describe, this kind of describes the anthropology, um, what a human being is. So if you have a Tijani disciple, um, they picture themselves as kind of like layers of an onion. At the core, that the reality, what they are, is just God. So at the core, the reality of what anything is, is just God. Then uh, slightly around that is the prophet. Slightly less deep, slightly less than that is Sheikh Tijani. Slightly less deep than that is Sheikh Ibrahim. So these disciples believe that in their spiritual practice, in experiencing fana, as they go deeper into themselves, they encounter the spiritual reality of their Sheikh, of Sheikh Tijani, who founded the order of the Prophet, and then ultimately God, um, because the process of creation works the opposite way. So the idea is because they kind of come from God and are created through these figures, these intermediary figures, when they return to God, they also go through these intermediary figures. Um, that's an, another way of picturing it here, but it's the same, same basic idea. Okay, so now that we've kind of gotten a crash course background on kind of Sufi doctrine, Tijani doctrine, all these little esoteric things, we can get into the meat of the presentation, which is, okay, so what is Tijani epistemology? Um, so I spent some time in about a year in Senegal interviewing masters or sheikhs and disciples, asking them, uh, what is knowledge, particularly marifa, which is this special direct knowledge, existential knowledge that uh, they, they claim to have acquired through their practice? Um, how is it acquired? How do you get marifa? How does this process of acquisition work? So what is it about the litanies that you say? If you were to say your litanies in English or French, would they still work? If you were to say a 
certain prayer 105 times instead of 100 times, would it still work? Um, and then how is it verified? So how do you know that you know, and how do you know if someone else knows, if someone else has marifa? Uh, so my research was conducted mainly in Dakar and Kaulak, uh, particularly Medina Bay, which is where Sheikh Ibn Yas is buried and where a lot of his uh, close disciples and children live and still teach. Um, and it involved a lot of textual translation and study, a lot of interviews, and a lot of observations of uh, different rituals that people would do, and just also hanging out with uh, with uh, these Tijani disciples and masters. Okay. So, what is marifa? When I asked these, these disciples this, they would sometimes call it existential knowledge, deep knowledge, inside knowledge, knowledge of God or knowledge of reality. In French, one guy called it la science métaphysique. Uh, one disciple said it's knowing that you are nothing and God is everything. Uh, another disciple said it's knowing who you really are and actually being it too. Others just likened it to taste or smell and that it's indescribable. Some of them called it the most important thing, the goal of life the most precious thing uh, in the world. Um, one disciple told me, it's like, I think it's the opposite of rational knowledge or sensory knowledge. It's not rational. It's tough to speak about. It's not like this is white or this is black. It's tough to put words on it. I, I can speak for hours. You still won't know the thing. You can't really learn it. It's something you experience. It's like scholars. They read, they learn. It's like you read a guidebook about Paris you learn the history of Paris, see pictures of Paris, but it's better to go there for two days. Now you really know Paris. But if you've never been to Paris, uh, you read about Paris for years, you don't know. Um, so he said the, some of these young disciples here, even though they don't have much formal or conventional learning, they know way more about God because of this direct knowledge that they've achieved through their, their spiritual practice. And so I asked him, the same disciple, what did he learn from this marifa? What did he learn from his spiritual practices? And you can see what he says here. And he also talked about the way it changed his life. So he said, change the way I see things, the way I react to events, the way I plan things. I'm less affected by outside events. Um, so most Muslims say they believe in destiny, but when something bad happens, it's like they don't believe anymore. Uh, and he said, I feel this, but of course sometimes I get sad, I get angry. It's not like you totally just, you know, even keel out, but you get closer to that. And he said, again, emphasize that it's different reading it and living it. Um, and he said, compared to it's like you asked me, how does an apple taste? I can talk for hours and you're still not going to know how it tastes until you taste it for yourself. And this knowledge is the same. It's difficult to talk about it. I couldn't prove it, but I know myself and that's enough for me. So others relied on this, um, other disciples and especially masters I interviewed relied on this classical ternary of describing this knowledge of Marifa in terms of certainty and degrees of certainty. The uh, lowest degree of certainty is called Elma Yakin or knowledge of certainty. The next is called Ainal Yakin or eye of certainty. And the highest is called Hakal Yakin or the reality of certainty. Elma Yakin they liken to, it's like if someone tells you there's a fire over there in like the Stanford Oval. Um, and you hear about it and you accept it, or maybe you don't. Ainul Yakin is you go over to the, go outside and you actually see it. And it's like, okay, so it's something like So it's a certain different level of certainty. Hakal Yakin is when they say you're actually in the fire burning up. You actually are the fire. It's become existential. It's become a form of self-knowledge and is thus no longer subject to doubt. Because as Descartes and other people show us, you can doubt kind of everything uh, that's going on around you. But what's directly... Uh, present to yourself, you can't doubt. You can't doubt that there's a self that's doubting, for example. Um, one disciple, uh, 
creatively uh, compared it to uh, Marifa to a canal decoder for like the satellite channels. He said, life before you get this Marifa is like watching static on a screen. Then when you get the Marifa, it's, uh, it's like someone turned on the decoder and all of a sudden all the images become clear and you can understand what's, what's going on. Uh, my own way of trying to make sense of or describe modify, I often use these optical illusions, because the word modify actually comes from the Arabic root arafa, which uh, in some forms can mean to recognize, or to get to know like the way you get to know another person. Um, so uh, do you see a young lady or an old lady here? I don't know if this is familiar to everyone. You see both? I see young. You see young? Now this is the nose, this is the mouth, it's the eye, it's the hair. Can you see the old lady now? <laughs> you see the old lady now. So that kind of switch, that kind of perspective switch is often how, it's very, to me, struck me as very similar to how these disciples would describe their experience of Marifa, like a radical perspective switch in the way they see the world, the way they perceive things. It's not like they're seeing anything different. It's not like necessarily like they have to have visions and all these kinds of things. No, no, no. It's just the way in which they're processing what they're seeing, the recognition of what's going on is different. And you can kind of switch back and forth between the two, just the disciples describe switching back and forth between seeing everything as God and everything as being separate from God. And it's really neither and both at the same time. Or this is another great example. Can anyone make out what that is? The one on the right? Oh, yes. Uh, your left. Um, okay. Now can you make out what it is? It's a cow. Exactly. So the way that his disciples described the acquisition of Marifa is as if someone suddenly drew a line around this thing. Oh, suddenly now you recognize it. And when you look at it again, it's hard to see it as anything other than a cow. So just to give you an idea of this kind of, what this kind of perspective shift that they're describing feels like. Okay. Uh, the disciples often emphasized very strongly that this was self-knowledge. And because it was a form of self-knowledge, it couldn't be doubted. It was certainty. Um, and this knowledge of self was such that it was knowledge of the self as God and God as self. Such that someone who has achieved Marifa is not called uh, someone who knows God, but rather someone who knows by God. Arif Billah, rather than Arifullah. Because the idea is once you achieve Marifa, you realize it's not you doing the knowing, it's God knowing through you. Um, the disciples, and especially the, the masters, describe this Marifa as the foundation, the crown, and the goal of all other forms of knowledge. Uh, they would famously quote this hadith, saying of the prophet, which I haven't been able to find an official reference for, but whatever, they quote it all the time, in which God says, seek knowledge of me before you worship me, for if you don't know me, how can you worship me? Saying that you have to have this marifa, you have to have knowledge of God even before you worship, because otherwise, what are you worshiping? You don't know what you're doing. Um, and this other quote here, it says that everything, all other forms of knowledge can be dispensed with occasionally, except for the knowledge of Sufism or this, this marifa. And it's comprehensive, Marifa is comprehensive of all of them, as well as being their prerequisite. Um, so this is kind of this perspective of Marifa is both the fruit or the crown of all knowledge, but also its foundation and its base, all other forms of knowledge. Okay, so how, how do you get this wonderful direct perspective shift knowledge of God? Uh, the disciples and the sheikhs and the text I read explained to me, okay, you have to practice the Sharia, you've got to pray, don't drink. 
don't have sex outside of marriage, don't do all these things, do do your prayers and a bunch of other, you know, fast during Ramadan, so on and so forth. Um, and then also you say the Tijani Weird, which is a particular set of prayers and litanies they recite once, sometimes twice a day. Uh, but the real way in which this particular branch of Tijani Sufism is unique is this process called Tarbiya. Um, which is said to take disciples very, very quickly to this state of annihilation and then from that onwards to this state of subsistence, bring them to spiritual perfection very quickly. And this process of tarbiyah is a particular set of of, uh, formulae, Arabic formulae that the disciples recite, um, it's kept very secret. I learned what it was, but I promised them not to share it with anyone. Um, this particular set of Arabic prayers that you recite, one like a certain hundred number of times, another several thousand times, so on and so forth. And you keep doing this until you experience this annihilation. Um, and so I'll give you some quotes from disciples and how they describe their experience of tarbiya, this kind of initiatory experience opening them up onto this. So one uh, young woman I interviewed, her mother is actually a sheikha. It's a very prominent Sufi master. She has hundreds of disciples. But this uh, young woman said, I wasn't really interested in these things, even though I saw people coming to my mom for them. I was more interested in having fun with my friends and going to clubs. Uh, My mom never stopped me from going to clubs. She said, if you're interested in what I have, come take it. So after some of her friends did tarbiya with her mom and she saw how it changed them, she got interested um, and went back to her mom. And then she, Salatul Fatih is this particular prayer on the Prophet that they recite in the process of, of tarbiya. Um, so she took tarbiya from her mom. Her mom basically initiated her and gave her these formulae, which involves saying this particular prayer hundreds of times a day. So she said she started doing this, and when she went back to the club, she could still hear the prayer going in her head, and it just didn't feel right, so she stopped going. Um, and then another disciple... Um, I'll just actually read his testimony because it's it's pretty cool. If we still have we still have some time, okay. So he says, uh, I was out late one night with my friends. We're coming back from a club. Those days I used to go out party and smoke cigarettes. It was very late. He doesn't do that anymore. Um, I heard the sound of these uh, the Sufi gathering. I liked the sound of it. It was different from what I heard before. So I went and asked them what it was about. Um, and then my elder brother. I found I was actually a member of this group, and then I took the the weird, and a week later I asked for tarbiyah, because I always heard these people say that you have to know God first when we want to practice his religion. And that idea made me curious. How can we know God? Who is God? If we can know God, where is God? Can I communicate with him? So I wanted to know to discover if we can really know God. So said, people have many interpretations of what knowing God means. For some, it means you know that God is the greatest, that he's the one that gives you life, food, etc. He's the one who's created the world. But for myself, I consider that not very strong. So it made me curious to go further and understand if we can actually know God. While I was doing my initiation, during the night, I was alone near the beach. I looked at the beach. So a lot of the disciples, because this process can take hours a day, they often go to the beach, beaches in Dakar with their prayer beads and sit there and do it. Um, so he said, I thought maybe something will come out of the ocean and tell me that it's God. But then I said, no, no, that's not possible because God is not limited. Whatever it is, no matter how awesome it is, it's still limited, so it can't be God. So days later, I still didn't know who God was. In one moment, I said, hmm, these Nyasans, followers of Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas, they just make people silly to lose their sense. 
But my sheikh gave me these words, the first, the last, the outward, and the inward. To me, that meant that God is the first and the last, the visible and the invisible. So for example, if I put my hand here, I can see this, but I can't see what's behind it. I said that probably all things we are seeing, all things I can see, there's a visible and invisible side. The visible side is God, and the side that I can't see is also God, and likewise with the first and the last. So I asked myself, who is here to know that God was first or last? I didn't really understand, but I understood that God is really unlimited. Um, okay, I'll skip ahead a little bit. So he said, after, yeah, my, my she- I was confused again, then my sheikh said, uh, there's a proverb in Wolof that says, all things that are not good are nothing. So I asked myself, who can show nothing? Who can identify nothing? He made us ponder about that idea. Can we identify nothing? Can we put our finger on a point towards nothing? So what if all things which are not God are nothing? So that means everything is God. So after my initiation, I remember my sheikh asking me if it was good to drink beer. I said beer and water are the same thing because I was in the state of fana and everything was identical. Um, I should say here, so in my observation, when people would finish their tarbiyah, they would be in uh, this kind of ecstatic state where they would be crying oftentimes or saying, I'm God, or everything is God, or you are God. Um, and this has made this practice in the Sufi order very controversial uh, amongst other Muslims in the region and around the world. Uh, but what he's describing here is very common and actually a way in which some masters test their disciples to see if they've actually made it. One uh, female sheikh told me how some disciples should things get tired of doing these rigorous spiritual disciplines, so they'll fake being in this state. And the way she tests them is by uh, <laughs> she has a lighter, and she'll put it up close to them. And if they if they flinch away from it, she knows they're not really in the state of fana. Because if they're really in the state, they'll perceive the lighter as God and won't flinch. Um, so anyway, to skip ahead, because I'm already running uh, long on time, he used this experience of initiation to help him in his philosophy class. This guy, is, uh, he was a philosophy student in college. Now he teaches philosophy at university. So he said, um, one of my philosophy professors asked, can we create a stone that's bigger than God? Uh, so then we have, if, can God create a stone that's bigger than him or too heavy for him to pick? You know, the classic paradox. So this disciple said, uh, so... God can't do it, we have to limit God's power. But when I studied Sheikh Ibn Yasser's philosophy, I understood that the teacher was ignorant because there's no difference between the stone and God. That's why I appreciate this initiation. Once you do it, you're able to explain or even to understand many things, even if you've never dealt with them before. Um, There's some other uh, testimonies from disciples uh, in which he said, you know, I used to pray. Um, but at some point, the prayer just became like doing gymnastics, just like physical exercises that you do. When you do this tabia, you gain the knowledge of why you pray. Um, you gain the knowledge of God. When you know God, you know yourself and know everything. Um, another disciple said, it's a lot like philosophy. Philosophers say, I think, therefore I am, but do they really know what this means? He said, tabia is like jumper cables. You get connected and you come to life. Um, he said, also, again, this emphasizes this experiential dimension. You have to live it. Um, another disciple also was, went very philosophical with this and said, people ask themselves, who am I? Why am I in the world? Why are there so many people? Why are there different people? These existential questions. People want to understand the world in themselves. Um, and Tarbiya gives all the answers to these questions. And he again explains, because the world and everything in it was created through this emanation from God to the Prophet and so on and so forth, when you do Tarbiya, you go back to God. Uh, and then because, because you go back to God and God is the source of everything, in a sense you know the principle or the root of everything. 
Uh, this is poetic description that Sheikh Ahmed Tijani. So those are some of the disciples' descriptions of this process, and these are some textual descriptions. Because we're a little short on time, I will move through them. Uh, go back to them later. Okay, so I asked the disciples, okay, this is really cool. Um, they often describe as an ocean, a drop uh, falling in the ocean, or an ocean becoming a drop. You have the whole world contained in yourself. So this is great, but like, how does this work? You have this formula of Arabic recitations. Would it work if you said it in French? Would it work if you said it in English? Would it work if you had different numbers? Um, and I got different answers from different people, but they all kind of, as I said, the way Tarbiya works to kind of shift your perspective um, and change things like this usually has to do with these factors. So the, either the focus or sincerity or zeal of the disciple is very important. So if you're really focused, um, that will, the Tarbiya will make you just focus on God so much, you just think about God, God, God all the time. So eventually you enter the state. Uh, another thing they emphasized heavily was transmission. So you have to have someone who transmits this to you. You can't just find out the formulas yourself and do them. It's not like a LSD that you pop or something and all of a sudden you have this crazy trip. There has to be someone who transmits this to you. Otherwise, it, it won't work. And the formulas were often described as a way of accomplishing this transition uh, in a kind of a tangible way. Uh, another way thing uh, that was used to describe this was this uh, Sufi theory of language uh, called Al-Mahruf, or Science of Letters, which is very difficult to describe. Oh, oops, sorry. Um, science of Letters, um, which is each letter in the Arabic language is associated with a number and is believed to have a certain kind of force or effect. So it's kind of like if you play music, uh, uh, a, minor, a minor scale or chord has a certain effect on you. It may make you feel sad. A major scale might make you feel happy. So they believe all of the different letters, every word that you say has a particular kind of effect on your soul. And most of us are not aware of this. It's only those people who are spiritually enlightened can be aware of it. And there have been lots of books written on this peculiar science. Um, and, but they all emphasize that it's not something that you can understand uh, rationally. It'd be like trying to explain um, the emotional content of music to a deaf person. So you can learn music theory and learn, okay, these intervals create a minor scale and minor scale sounds sad, but until you actually have the sensory, the actual experience of it, it's uh, tough to understand. So that, uh, that experience, that theory of language was also invoked to explain the efficacy of these prayers. Also, the idea of following the Prophet um, and transforming yourself to be like the Prophet uh, was invoked. So the, the idea being that um, proper knowledge presumes a proper instrument of knowledge. So, for example, I can't read what's... Without my glasses, I can't read what's back there. With the corrective of my glasses, now that my instrument of knowledge, my faculty has been corrected, I can read this as China's strategic sea power back there. The idea is that the human, um, human beings themselves are Im have imperfect faculties for n knowledge in general, but especially knowledge of God. And by But the prophet is the example of the perfection of the human faculties. For He's the perfect Noah. So in becoming more like the prophet, you yourself, it's like putting glasses on. You become a better Noah, and you can know things. So these practices mold you in the form of the prophet, and in doing so, that allows you to know the prophet, God, everything, especially through direct self-knowledge, because you're like the prophet, you know the prophet through self-knowledge. 
Okay, I'll skip the other things and go to um, how is this verified? So, that, okay, that's cool, but how do you know if you know? And how do you know if someone else knows? So, how do you know, like, for example, do I have marifa? Could you tell if I have marifa or not? When I ask the sheikhs, when someone says they're done, how do you know that they're actually done? Um, so some disciples said, oh, it's just self-evident. Once you experience fana, like there's no mistaking what happened to you. That's it. It's such a radical perspective shift. Uh, um, I describe to you others, the masters examine them. Sometimes they ask them questions. Who are you? Where are you? Uh, what is this? If I gave you water and beer to drink, which would you drink? So on and so forth to see. Or the most extreme case I heard of was with the lighter. Um, and... Uh, this examination by masters is, in, is usually con- it's kind of the normative way in which you, you kind of get the seal of approval. Like, yep, you've had a, you've you've had this radical perspective shift. So, in conclusion, it's um, marifa. The acquisition of marifa is a radical perspective shift that introduces new modes of both being and knowing, in which the two are actually the same. The mode of knowing is identical with the, the mode of being, and the Tijani tradition is itself full of its own ritual theories explaining how this happens, why this happens, why it works. So it would be interesting maybe to do like a neurological study of what's going on in these disciples' brains when they're doing this. But for me, that's far less interesting than actually understanding how the disciples and the tradition itself theorizes this. So you could put these guys under an fMRI and see which cortexes are lighting up and which ones aren't, and that would be something. But I think, again, with the example of Chinese medicine and Western medicine, that wouldn't tell us what's really happening. That would just tell us one aspect of what's going on. And for me, the more interesting thing is what the disciples and the tradition actually say what's going on. Um, yeah, so uh, in my dissertation, I compared this epistemology of Marifa to other philosophical theories. So most famously in uh, Anglophone philosophy, we have this idea of justified true belief. The knowledge is justified true belief. Uh, Marifa doesn't really fit into this category. I'm not even sure how you tra- translate justified true belief into, into Arabic. Um, you have to significantly modify this. And I went through several other uh, epistemological theories, coherentist theory, foundationalist theory, and showed how Marifa, you could interpret it through that lens, but it doesn't quite fit. Um, maybe we can get into that more in, in the questions. So these were just some more disciple testimonies about um, what Marifa was like. That was about the theory of language, but that would, that would take too long. Okay, so in conclusion, uh, Tijani epistemology and Sufi epistemology in general is founded on a mode of self-knowledge that's identical with being. Uh, in this mode of self-knowledge, the distinction between the knowing subject and the known object is collapsed, is collapsed in the state of annihilation, which is why the knowers, people who have modified the special knowledge, are called knowers by God, not knowers of God. Um, as such, because it's a form of self-knowledge, uh, ritual practices of self-transformation are important to cultivating this ideal mode of being knowing, which is identified with the founders of the tradition, with the Prophet, with Sheikh Mitijani, and in this branch with Sheikh Ibrahim. So the only thing you can know for certain is yourself. Um, that's the only form of certainty you can have. If you then transform yourself through these ritual exercises, go deep in yourself, um, then that will also transform what you know, give you a different mode of being. Um, so uh, another takeaway is that taking traditions own uh, theories seriously and treating these traditions as subjects of study versus objects of inquiry so I tried to treat the Tijani tradition and I should be clear I'm not a member of this tradition so I'm looking at coming at this from the outside um, as something that we can learn or learn from rather than just learn about so today in the academy we learn 
science, computer science, biology, math, but we learn about everything else. We learn the history of, uh, for example, Arabic poetry or something like that. Maybe, maybe Professor Key, maybe you teach them how to write their own Arabic poetry or something like that. But usually we learn about things outside of math and science, and we learn math and science. Um, and especially when it comes to these different intellectual traditions, we learn about them. We seldom learn them from the inside or learn from them. We seldom look at things that we can learn from and take things from for, to enrich our own academic uh, life. Um, and as an exercise for this, in my own dissertation, I had a section on how contemporary scholarship might look in the mirror of Tijani Sufism inspired by conversations I had with disciples who they would often compare, as many of them had formal Western schooling, and they would compare the knowledge that they got through their spiritual practice with the knowledge and learning they got from this other intellectual tradition, the formal French colonial, uh, formal colonial schools. Um, so I generally contrast them as uh, Sufism and these other intellectual traditions are in general more theoria-oriented, and our current academic traditions are more theory-oriented. Uh, and I want to explain what I mean by that. So theoria is an old Greek term. Uh, comes from ancient Greek philosophy, but it has a life in the Greek orth uh, Eastern Orthodox Church as well, and refers to a mode of blissful contemplation of reality. It's this one existential and intellectual. Theory, on the other hand, is generally described as a set of uh, ideas, beliefs, an intellectual framework which we can use to predict or explain a certain phenomena. Um, and so theory is very powerful, and we have uh, our academic exercises are generally more theory-oriented versus theory-oriented, more mental and discursive than existential. Um, another thing that the uh, disciples brought up a lot was, what's the point? They say, philosophers, you talk and talk and talk and do all this stuff, but does it make you a better person? Does it answer these fundamental questions for you, or does it just make you talk and talk and talk more? Um, another interesting comparison was within Tijani Sufism and Sufism in general, there's a unity of epistemology, ontology, and ethics. Uh, so, you, for example, you can't be a jerk and no marifa. And part of the, the part of the whole point of being a good person is so you can actually know God. So epistemology and ethics are not separated. But also, it's also not separated from the ontology because it's by doing this that you can actually know uh, what is and what isn't. Um, and this also implies, interestingly, when we have time to get into this, what I call the wisdom of the body. The body plays a really important role in the process of acquiring knowledge. Um, you do all these like physical exercises, you recite formulae with your mouth and things like that, and it's theorized in a very embodied physical way, which is different from the way in which learning here is theorized. We don't think about the postures necessarily in which you sit or stand at your computer and how that affects uh, your knowledge. Um, Perhaps most significantly is the idea that within this epistemology, the real is an active participant in the process of learning. So when I studied neuroscience or biology, no one would talk to me about the brain. Uh, the brain was a passive thing that we you know, went into and studied and got information out of. It wasn't involved in revealing itself to us. Whereas in these epistemologies, reality itself, or the real itself, which is one of the names of God, is an active participant in the process of knowing. It's like knowing another person. So it's a very different kind of paradigm. Instead of the, the known object being a passive object, it's also a knowing subject, uh, which just makes things very, very different. Oh, yeah, so this is what one disciple told me, that philosophy is just speaking, but this is uh, Sufism is a way of life. Um, 
Okay, so finally, there's one quote by a contemporary Sufi author that I thought just kind of summed up uh, things quite nicely. He said, there's intelligence and there's intelligence. There's knowledge and there's knowledge. So on the one hand, a fallible mind that registers and elaborates, and on the other hand, a heart intellect. In Sufism, the uh, faculty of knowledge is often identified with the heart that perceives and projects its infallible vision onto thought. Here lies the entire difference between a logical certitude that can replace another logical certitude and a quasi-ontological certitude that nothing can replace because it is what we are or because we are what it is. And so finally, um, I have one final note on uh, approaching these different intellectual traditions, um, some things we, I think we should think about. Because many of us here, I think, work with different uh, traditions outside of the academy. We read things by people who aren't just writing in English or things like that. So this is quotes from my dissertation. So I said, just because the military and economic machinery that supports and defends our modern academic institutions is more powerful than those of other intellectual traditions or civilizations, that does not mean that our ideas are better, more profound, or more true. And it's become increasingly difficult to ignore this fact. So I think such serious consideration of these different intellectual traditions outside of our own academy doesn't require that we embrace them or blindly accept all their claims, but it requires that we be humble and that we acknowledge the possibility that our difficulties in understanding them may have more to do with our own history and training than they do with the particularities of the traditions themselves. Thank you very much.